Sometimes I think God makes us persist for the simple reason that we know that he was the one who answered. We've been seeking God, we've been asking God, and then he does it. How many times have you prayed for something, God answers, and you don't even thank him? Look, when you've persisted in prayer, you'll thank God. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. We're in a mini-series profiling the life of the prophet Elijah. Within that life, we have seen that Elijah was a man of prayer. That has led Dr. Brogy to discuss the issue of prayer in a message entitled, Elijah the Prayer Warrior. Our text is from 1 Kings 18, verses 41 to 46. And as we pick up, Dr. Brogy today addresses the importance of prayer and of perseverance in prayer. I am reminded of my need to pray in Mark 135. Let me read it to you. It says, Now in the morning, having risen a long while before daylight, he, Jesus, went out and departed to a solitary place, and there he prayed. Now, if you know your Gospels, there are 52 recorded days in the life of Christ. And Mark chapter 1 records the single most busiest day in the life of our Lord. It was a day full of miracles, healing, teaching, and preaching. And if you've ever sustained a public ministry of a sort, then you know how very exhausting that can be for an individual. And it was the next morning, even before the sun came up, after the single busiest recorded day in the life of Christ, that he got up to pray. Now, if that was Jesus' need, what is our need? Now, unfortunately, we think our need is just partial. But we need to see it is absolutely total. And so here in 1 Kings 18, Elijah recognizes his total need. He was crouched down, the text says, before God. He is in humility, and he's pleading with God for God to work. And that's what we need today. We need to see God work and the work of God in the body of Christ amongst evangelicalism is not languishing because of a lack of divine power. It is languishing because of a lack of earnest, passionate prayer by God's people. And the longer I serve Christ in ministry, the more impressed I am by the subtlety of Satan. If I were the devil, I would not try to confuse in the trivial. I would try to confuse in the crucial areas. Satan doesn't mind if you evangelize, just as long as you don't pray. He recognizes that unless God moves in the heart of a person, a person who is blinded by what Paul calls the small God of this world, then nothing's going to happen. All your words are in vain. He recognizes that it is far more important for the preacher, for the church member, to talk to God about men ever before we talk to men about God. For that matter, Satan doesn't mind that you study the Bible just as long as you don't pray. And Bible study without prayer will never change you. It typically just leads to an awful case of spiritual pride. And it's one of the dangers of a lot of seminarians. They are filled with spiritual pride, but they're unchanged. Satan doesn't even mind that you are compulsively active in this church just as long as you don't pray. Why? 
because it's work without genuine fruit. Samuel Chadwick, an English pastor over 100 years ago, penned these words. The one concern of the devil is to keep Christians from praying. He fears nothing from prayerless studies, prayerless work, and prayerless religion. He laughs at our toil. He mocks at our wisdom, but he trembles when we pray. Elijah was a man who earnestly and passionately prayed before God. Literally, he prayed in his prayers. Now, there's a second lesson I want us to grasp about Elijah, this man who was a prayer warrior. Not just the passion of his prayer, but the persistence of his prayer. Notice first that his persistency is embedded first in his expectancy. Look at the expectancy of his prayer, starting now in verse 43. He said to his servant, go up now, look toward the sea. That's the Mediterranean Sea. You can see it from the top of that mountain, from the top of Mount Carmel. Go look toward the sea. So he went up and looked and said, there is nothing. And he said, go back seven times. So six times Elijah sent his servant to the crest of the hill. And he, and he asked him, what do you see? And each time he came back, he says, there's nothing. But now we read here in verse 44. It came about at the seventh time that he said, Behold, a cloud as small as a man's hand is coming up from the sea. And he said, Go up, say to Ahab, prepare your chariot and go down so that the heavy shower will not stop you. Now, the progression in this verse illustrates the expectancy and the persistency he had in prayer. Notice he crouched down. Picture it. His head is between his knees. And he looks up for a moment and he says to his servant, go up now, look toward the sea. And while his servant goes that short distance to the crest of the hill, he goes back in that crouched position. So he went up and looked and he said, there's nothing. So he continues to pray. He sends his servant out six times and each time he comes back, he says, there's nothing. Then in verse 43, he tells us, Elijah said, go back seven times. Now follow the progression. Look at your text. We move from six reports of nothing in verse 43 to a cloud. I've got errors written in my Bible to a cloud as small as a man's hand to prepare your chariot so it does not get stuck in verse 44. Then finally here in verse 45 to the sky that grew black with clouds and wind to the actual heavy shower. And between all the reports given to Elijah by his servant, while there was not a cloud in the sky, he could still say to Ahab, there is the sound of the roar of a heavy shower. Why? Because he's expecting God to work. Now, in addition to the expectancy in his prayer, I want you to observe the perseverance in his prayer, the perseverance in his prayer. Now, seven times he said again, 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 again. And all the time, Elijah is praying. Now, most of us would have thrown in the towel long before this. Suppose Elijah quit praying on the sixth time. But no, an expectant, persevering prayer with a promise to claim. He sends his, pro his servant each time to scan the skies because he's believing God to send the rain. Just remember, you expect nothing. You will get it every time. First Kings 18.1 is a promise. I will send rain. And so Elijah clings to that promise and he believes God by faith and he perseveres in prayer. Now, I can't read this text 
without thinking about Matthew 7, 7. So put out next to this verse, next to verse 43, just write out in the margin of your Bible, Matthew 7, 7. And let me read that verse of scripture to you. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. Now, the three verbs, ask, seek, and knock, are a special present tense in the Greek New Testament. And when there's a critical nuance in the original language, this is where the New American Standard with footnotes are extremely helpful to you. It literally says, keep asking, keep seeking, keep knocking which tells me about the character of our Heavenly Father. He's never bothered. He always welcomes you. And as you can see in this verse, there's an intensification of the prayer. We go from asking to seeking to knocking. He instructs us first in prayer that we must ask. That expresses our desire, our wish our, before the Lord. Do you know what one of the greatest problems of prayer today is? It's not unanswered prayer. It is unasked prayer. And James tells us in his short epistle, you do not have because you do not ask. Now, don't fall into the erroneous way of thinking that somehow you divide the secular from the spiritual. Um, they are all the same to God. You should pray about everything. You should pray about a Bible study or to lead someone that you're hoping to share a word of testimony about, and you should pray for a parking spot. Everything is important to God. We are to pray without sissing. You say, well, pastor, I pray about the big things. I don't usually pray about the little things. Let me ask you something. Is there anything big to an omnipotent, all-powerful God? There's nothing unimportant to God. It's all little to him. I mean, there's nothing too small that God is not interested in if he goes to every sparrow's funeral, if he has the hairs on your head numbered. I don't know about you, but I love to hear the prayer of either a child or a new believer who hasn't learned all the lingo yet. They don't have all the jargon, all the cliches, and you just hear, among other things, their heart. And the problem for some of us is we've been educated beyond our own intelligence. And if you want to hear how sometimes we should pray, just listen to children to pray. Just listen to the new believer to pray. We always prayed every single night with our children. When we would drive to church, we would be teaching them conversational prayer. We'd split up the prayer request. Jeremy, you pray for the choir leader today. And Jordan, you pray for the nursery workers. And we'd go around the whole car and we'd pray for different things. And we'd pray for them at night. And, and we pray the same way with our grandchildren. And sometimes with our children via the internet and the accesses that we have where we can all be on one screen. I remember praying one particular night, my son Grant, there was something that he wanted to buy, but he didn't have the funds for it. He was just seven years old, so he decided to resurrect his cookie business, and he recruited his nine-year-old sister with her beautiful smile to sell the product. And on Monday night, before we went to bed, he said, Father, please help us to sell some cookies tomorrow. Well, on Tuesday morning, ever before he mixed up the batter and started, they started knocking on the doors, you know, to harass the neighbors. I mean, how can you turn down a kid? Well, Archie Brown, who at the time was one of my neighbors, he calls the house. 
And he says, I'd like to buy some cookies, seven dozen. Well, no one had ever called the house before with an order, and no one had ever ordered more than one or two dozen. Now, who do you suppose put that in Archie Brown's heart? I'll tell you who did. The God of heaven put that in his heart. And it's no accident that Jesus said, unless you become like a little child, you will never make it into the kingdom. Not childish, but childlike. You should try to lead your children to Christ, and you should teach them how to pray. But Jesus instructs us in this verse not just to ask, but notice he says to seek. And now there's a greater intensity. Some prayer you just ask, and it's done. God immediately answers. But there's some prayer that needs to be seeking prayer. And sometimes God makes us seek persistently to teach us to continue to trust him. And because of fellowship that he wants to have, God's not just interested in giving you an answer to your prayer. God enjoys your presence if you've met him. He wants you to walk with him and talk with him. And one way to cultivate that relationship is through seeking prayer. And sometimes we have to persist in seeking prayer because God's timing is perfect and he knows the best time from his understanding when it needs to be answered. And sometimes I think God makes us persist for the simple reason that we know that he was the one who answered We've been seeking God, we've been asking God, and then he does it. How many times have you prayed for something, God answers, and you don't even thank him? Look, when you've persisted in prayer, you'll thank God. When I was doing my graduate studies in seminary, there was a particular brother who sold his business to go to school. He was obeying the call of God in his life to become a pastor. And financially, things were very challenging for him and his family of six. And as was their custom every evening, he would ask his children, is there something that you guys want to pray about? And on one particular night, Timothy, the youngest of the four boys, said, Daddy, do you think that maybe we could pray that God would give me a new shirt? He said, of course, Timothy. And mom would write it down in the prayer journal, and she added next to it, size seven. By the way, I hope you know God loves to answer specific prayer, because when you pray specifically, you see God answer that this was his answer. Every night for over a month, when Timothy's turn came to pray, he would pray that God would give him a new shirt. And then one day, a clothing store owner there in the city of Dallas called mom and said, you know, I'm doing inventory and I'm, we just finished our summer sale and we're overstocked on some stuff and I've got uh, some boys shirts, it's only in one size, you think you could use them? She said, what size? Size seven. <laughs> and she, he gave her 12 brand new shirts. Now this mother being as wise as she was, didn't just go stick them in a closet. Night came asking God, don't forget, Dad, we need to pray for my new shirt. He said, Timothy, we don't need to pray for it. God has answered. He has. And she had those boys, one at a time, make all these trips. And this kid had a stack of 12 brand-new size 7 shirts in front of him. He thought God had gone into the shirt business. Listen, do you teach your children how to pray? You need to, and you won't do that 
if you don't pray? Or do you just give it to them in this affluent society that we've been living in? Jesus taught we are to ask, we are to seek. But then he notes here in Matthew 7, 7, we are to knock. Knock, and it shall be opened to you. Knocking prayer, I suppose, is the highest persistent kind of prayer. It's when you keep asking God until you know clearly that he has either said no, you just keep asking. Let me read to you a parable that Jesus told in Luke chapter 11. Then he said to them, he's teaching them about prayer, suppose one of you has a friend and goes to him at midnight and says, friend, lend me three loaves. For a friend of mine has come to me from a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And from inside, he answers and said, do not bother me. The door has already been shut, and my children and I are in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, even though he will not get up and give him anything, because he is his friend, yet because of his persistence, he will get up and give him as much as he needs. Now, most of you know that in the Mideastern culture, and especially amongst the Hebrew people, it was unthinkable to turn away someone who needed food and lodging. So this man shows up at his friend's front door, and he says, James, may I stay in your home this evening? Why, John, we're happy to receive you. Come on in. It's kind of late, but we're glad you're here. Come in. Just make yourself comfortable. So James goes in, and he tells his wife, and he says, John's come here tonight. We need to feed him. We need to give him something to eat. She says, James, we don't have anything. We ate it all at dinner. Well, just give him some tea, and I'll, I'll go next door and see if I can get some food. So she says, John, sit down. Let me prepare something for you. I'll give you something to eat. James goes next door. It's midnight. He starts knocking. No one answers. He knocks louder. No one answers. Who is it? Matthew, it's me, James. What do you want? I need three loaves of bread. Don't bother me. Do you know what time it is? Shalom, Matthew, I need some bread. James, give me a break. I'm in bed. Now, remember, if you've ever seen even some of the ancient homes, we've toured a few on one of our trips in Israel. You know, quarters were tight. If you woke up one person, you typically woke up the whole family. Don't bother me, James. The kids are asleep. And if you wake them up, I'm in trouble. Listen, Matthew, a guest has shown up, and we don't have anything to feed him. Just get up and give me three loaves. Oh, be quiet. I'm coming. I'm coming. I'm coming. Here, take these and get out of here. Now, he didn't do it because he was a friend, Jesus said. He gave him what he needed because he wouldn't take no for an answer. It was his persistence. Jesus' point is that the Father will respond to persistent prayer, not because he's bothered by your coming, but because of who he is. And when we persist with God in prayer, God will in his goodness express his answer in a perfect way for Jesus then says in verse 13, if you then being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more shall your heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Have you learned to pray expectantly, perseveringly? I'm reminded that God doesn't answer all prayer in the same way. 
In the case of Elijah, when he confronts the 450 prophets of Baal, he prays and instantly it's answered. But in our passage this morning, he's seeking persistently God in prayer. And when we come to the next prayer, he's going to ask for a request and God will refuse him. Now, for obvious reasons, God answered him immediately in verses 36 to 38. Without pleading, he just immediately answers. And for other obvious reasons, he doesn't immediately answer his prayer for rain. Look, there's not a one-size-fits-all kind of prayer request. Now, just quickly, beyond the passion and the persistence of prayer, there's a product, the product of his prayer. Verse 44, it came about at the seventh time that he said, Behold, a cloud as small as a man's hand is coming up from the sea. And he said, Go up, say to Ahab, prepare your chariot and go down so that the heavy rain does not stop you. Look, it hadn't rained for three and a half years. As soon as it came down, it was going to be a mud pit. And he didn't want Ahab's chariot to get stuck. So we read in verse 46, In a little while... The sky grew block with clouds and wind, and there was a heavy shower, and Ahab rode and went to Jezreel. Then the hand of the Lord was on Elijah, and he girded up his loins and outran Ahab to Jezreel. That small cloud grew into a black sky. We had it yesterday where we lived in Seabrook. It started windy, and there's a few clouds, and it got black, and then the wind started blowing, and little limbs were coming down, and it poured, it let go, and then five minutes later, the sun was out. It was beautiful. This is no light drizzle. This is a downpour. In Elijah's day, the people were physically in drought, and they were spiritually in drought. And by comparison, America is in a spiritual drought. It's sad to see the state of our nation. We are witnessing, as I shared in a sermon many or eight weeks ago, is God angry with us? Yes, he is. God is angry with America. That may not sell and fill seats in Joel Olstein's church, but it's the truth of God. God is angry with the people that stiff-arm him and raise their fists. Look, you think we got trouble in America today. You haven't seen anything yet. Just stay at it, America. And things are going to get miserable. And there is a spiritual drought. And in one aspect of a spiritual drought in any culture, in the Israeli culture and in our culture, is when God withdraws the truth of his word. Remember in Saul's day, because of his disobedience, 1 Samuel 28 says, when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him either by dreams or by Urim or by prophets. Due to Israel's disobedience in Asaph's day, he bemoaned, there is no longer any prophet. And due to the sin in Amos' day, He said, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine for bread or a thirst for water, but rather for hearing the words of the Lord. Scripture teaches that a withdrawal of God's word, that's what we got in all these seeker-sensitive, nonsensical churches. All this fluff and stuff, but no expository preaching. There's a drought in America for the word of God. Now, I recognize there's a plethora of scripture in America since the 
development of the printing press, but there's a drought in the land for pastors to stand up and to teach the whole counsel of Scripture. And on a more personal level, you can sit even in a church like this where a pastor teaches the Word of God, but your soul will be starved spiritually if you do not have ears to hear it. You will not have a fresh word from God. And so preaching and teaching for some people has become tedious and tiresome, and we've had enough. Why'd you leave? The sermon was too long, Pastor. How pathetic that the heart is so cold that they cannot sit for one hour and hear the word of God. And so the drought breaks, the land is affected. Not only is the land affected, the man was affected. And Ahab rode and went to Jezreel. Then the hand of the Lord was on Elijah, and he girded up his loins and outran Ahab to Jezreel. Here's a map. You can see on this map, Jezreel is where the king and the queen live. It's about 18 miles away from Mount Carmel. And I want you to picture this situation. Ahab is in his chariot behind his choicest stallion, maybe stallions. And he's going at breakneck speed to outrun the rain, lest his chariot gets stuck. And Elijah pulls off his outer cloak, and he takes off running, and he hits passing gear, and he goes right by Ahab's chariot. Ahab, see you down there in Jezreel. I love this guy. Those knees that had been bent in prayer are now running top speed in a marathon. There's a new dynamic in this man's life. This is yet another miracle, as he's able to outrun a man's, a king's chariot. Now, you might be asking, why did God do this? I mean, God had already done an incredible display of work when he brought fire down from heaven and it not only ate up the sacrifice, but even the rocks were turned to dust. Why do this, comparatively speaking? It's a small miracle. So why does he have him running out in front of the chariot? It's really an expression of God's grace. He, as he follows this prophet down to Jezreel, he sees his back all the way, and this king is reminded that he should be following that prophet. This man who should have already fallen on his face in repentance, this man who listened to his wicked wife and promoted Baal worship, he should be following the prophet of God, but when we will see him next time, it's apparent that he's unresponsive. We'll see him next time in the devil's bedroom. Now, I can't think of a greater testimony that God could say of your life or mine than to say the hand of the Lord was on Elijah. The hand of the Lord was on Elijah, and that hand was unleashed through a clean heart, and a dependent heart is expressed in prayer. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. And there's a principle here that great prayer brings great blessing not because of the language of the prayer, not because of the length of the prayer, not because of the boldness of the prayer, but because it was passionate, persistent, unending prayer. And some of us have never gotten past first base. To listen again to today's message, Elijah the Prayer Warrior, 
part of our biographical series on the prophet Elijah, use the Search the Scriptures app for smartphones and tablets, or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. You can also order a CD or DVD by calling 877-787-7478 and request program ELI4. Search the Scriptures is made possible through the prayers and financial support of listeners like you. Tomorrow, we begin a look at overcoming discouragement. Join us then as we search the Scriptures.